Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Teaching Matters. This is an audio series where we explore the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in beautiful Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest for this program is Dr. Melissa Brockleman-Post, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. As both an administrator and a faculty member, Melissa has been deeply involved in advocacy for communication education as a critical skill for today's students. Melissa recently published with co-author Andrew Pyle a research study exploring methods for teaching communication skills to college students. And more broadly, Melissa has published extensively on related topics including classroom anxiety, teaching communication to non-native speakers, academic dishonesty, and news media literacy. Melissa, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you um, have done quite a bit of different types of research studies in communication, but uh, but but really, you have you wear a lot of different hats. You're not only a researcher and a teacher, but you're also an administrator. And the title that you have right now is that you're the basic course administrator um, at George Mason. Can you talk a little bit about what the basic communication course is? I mean, a lot of the listeners might think of the traditional public speaking course, but but there are ways to define it that go beyond that. Correct. Correct. Um, And actually, every university defines the basic course a little bit differently. So um, when we talk about the basic course, we usually mean the general education course that almost all students at a university take um, that have to do with oral communication skills. So at about 60% of universities that have a basic course, this is that traditional public speaking course. Um, At about 30-some percent, it's what we would call a hybrid course. Um, which has public speaking, interpersonal communication, small group communication, and maybe some other things thrown in. So here at George Mason University, um, intercultural communication is particularly important as part of our course as well. Um, At Mason, we're in sort of an unusual situation in that we actually have two basic courses. Um, We have a standalone traditional public speaking course And then we also have a hybrid course that has public speaking, interpersonal, small group, and intercultural communication together. And most students get to choose which one they get to take. Um, So my role as the basic course director is really to manage both of those programs in five sort of different areas. Um, A huge part of what I do is teacher training. Um, I have about 50 to 60 instructors every single year, half of whom have typically never taught or at least never taught a communication course before. Um, And so I get to put them through a sort of teaching boot camp um, and teach them how to teach at the university level, as well as start to really understand the communication skills and content that we're trying to teach. Um, Another piece of what I do really has to do with assessment. Um, We really, really, um, as we're moving forward, want to make sure that students are getting out of the class what we need them to get out of the class. Um, For most students, whichever communication course they take in this um, basic course structure um, will be the only communication course they take in their entire lives. But our students will use communication skills in their future courses, their careers, their communities. And so it's really critically important to us, especially um, as one of our goals as a university is to start producing um, more and more career-ready graduates that they have um, those communication skills. So a big part of what I do is assessing Mm -hmm. to make sure that our courses um, and our program are building the skills as well as we want them to. Yeah. if I could interrupt just for a second, so of course, uh, so the the difference between the hybrid and the public speaking course is really a matter of what facets of communication is emphasized. One really focuses just on public speaking; the other one might uh, include a, an array of of different communication contexts. As as an exactly. administrator, 
what are you trying to achieve um, in the hybrid course? In other words, what's the advantage? I mean, both courses are valuable. Otherwise, universities wouldn't require them. But what's the advantage of a hybrid approach? Or maybe a better way to ask this question, if you had a student in your office that was an incoming first-year student and they asked you, which course should I take? What would be the way you would explain that choice and decision-making process to the student? Yeah, I would really encourage the student to take the hybrid course. Um, I'm actually trying to convince other departments on campus that this really should be our only course. Um, and we'll see how that goes over the next couple of years. But the reason that I think the hybrid course is a better one for our students is that we're teaching communication skills in more contexts that they'll be able to apply in different ways. Um, so, you know, our traditional public speaking course is really um, focused on students standing in front of an audience of, you know, 20, 25 people. And we're really trying to teach, you know, to be able to speak in front of a larger audience as well and to give a speech where there's not a lot of um, back and forth happening during that communication interaction. Um, but when we think about the kind of context that students are likely to be working in as they move forward in their careers, they're going to be working on global teams where they might be working um, you know, via Skype, just like we're doing right now. Um, they might be doing um, WebExes where they're giving presentations remotely using, you know, some sort of internet tool so that they can show visuals and um, speak at the same time. But they're also doing a lot of things like um, giving presentations or having meetings and conference rooms where they're working together with a team to try to come up with a solution instead of presenting one that they've already thought of in advance. Mm -hmm. um, because we know that there's sort of a synchronicity um, to bringing students um, or to bringing colleagues together. Um, and sometimes we come up with better ideas together if we're able to do that well. Um, and I think that um, that's something that students don't always see as translating from what we do in our traditional public speaking class to um, what they're doing in the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other things that we're hearing from employers a lot, um, a couple of years ago, there was a panel of employers that came to the Basic Course Directors Conference to talk about what communication skills they really see missing in our students. And standing up in front of an audience giving a speech wasn't the first thing that came to mind. Mm -hmm. It was things like, can you have a conversation with me and look me in the eye and listen to and truly respond to what I'm saying instead of just thinking about what you're going to say next. Sure. Um, can you shake somebody's hand and treat them like um, you respect each other in that interaction um, instead of maybe acting like you don't feel like you belong in that interaction? Um, can you have a conversation with a colleague in a respectful way when you're disagreeing about something? Um, and, and so what we're trying to do in the hybrid course is really think about all of those things um, and then here, we're also really adding an intercultural element um, because um, if, if you know much about the Northern Virginia and D.C. area, we're an incredibly diverse area. Uh -huh. um, you know, in, in our classes, you're probably not going to have more than three students who would claim the same cultural background. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and when you look in the workplaces, um, you know, a lot of the workplaces here have people coming from a lot of different countries, a lot of different parts of the United States, a lot of... Um, ethnic, religious, racial, and a whole variety of other dimensions of diversity. Um, but they're also going to be working with people who are not in the same time zone or even the same country. And so we all come into those interactions with different kinds of assumptions about how communication should happen. Um, and so we're also trying to accomplish um, some skills development in that area. Sure. Yeah. I think that element of diversity makes... Um it's not only critically important for every student going through a communication course, but particularly unique to, you know, a few a few areas in the U.S., especially on the coast um, where you're living, but also on the West Coast where you've also worked. Yeah. Um, you've been doing 
basic course administration for, if my memory serves me correctly, well over a decade now, uh, if you include you know the totality of your experiences. How have you seen pedagogy uh, within the basic communication course evolve in the time that you've been working with students in that course? Um, I think it's evolved in a couple of different ways. Um, one of the most important ways um, that I think we're still evolving has to do with the technology that we use in the course. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think back to the first public speaking courses I taught, whether at Kansas State or at Ohio, you know, we were often teaching in classrooms where we maybe had a chalkboard or maybe a whiteboard. Um, maybe, especially um, as I moved toward Ohio, you know, we might have had a PowerPoint projector and a computer. But we really weren't using technology in um, much more deep ways in the ways that we thought about how we were teaching the class, right? Most of the teaching happened in the classroom face-to-face with the instructor and the students in the same space together. And then students would go home and they would read and they would work on their presentations. Um, But that's really what the educational experience looked like for most of our students. And they were residential students who lived on campus and had um, the ability to be available to work with other students if they needed to, to go to the writing center or the speech lab if they needed to, um, and had access to the physical resources of the campus. Um, But I think that technology, along with the changes in our student bodies, have really started to change that. And so, um, you know, today with um, some of the resources that are available in LMS systems like Blackboard and, um, you know, Moodle and, you know, whatever variety each campus is using, And we can actually move some of the things we were doing in the classroom into an online environment and change the way that we use our time together. And so one of the things that we've really started to think about pedagogically is, is it really a good use of our class time to have 50-some TAs, each in their own rooms, standing in front of their class, giving a lecture, regurgitating the material in the textbook? My answer to that question is not really. Um, <laughs> when we come together, there are so many rich things that we can be doing and so many skills that we should be practicing. Um, and if this is the one opportunity we have to help students develop the skills, we shouldn't be the ones doing all the talking in the classroom instead. And we really want students talking to each other and practicing those skills and getting really a lot of coaching in that classroom environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that we've seen pedagogically is sort of a move toward a flipped classroom. Um, And so what we've done here at Mason, um, and we've done this in different ways in each of our classes. Um, In our public speaking class, we've put some guided reading notes and some video lectures and quizzes online to really help students prepare um, and for us to really help them structure that out-of-class time and learn how to study outside of class to come prepared for class um, so that we're not doing that knowledge and comprehension level, that basic understanding of the content in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Instead, we're using our class time for activities and for discussions that go a little bit deeper um, and to really practice and work together on those skills. Because, um, you know, practicing communication, sort of like, you know, th- doing free throws in basketball, just talking about it doesn't help you get better. Like, you actually have to practice it and, you know, get <laughs> yeah. up and do it, right? Um, and so, you know, that's one of the ways that we've sort of flipped some of the classes. Um, you know, in others, we've really worked toward um, using more written prompts and asking students to think about, you know, what video clips can they find that illustrate some of the theories that we're learning about? So if we're talking about relationship stages, can they give me a film clip from, you know, a TV show they watched last night and talk about which relationship stage they're seeing with those characters? Uh Um, And so we've had some really great opportunities to be creative 
with what we do outside of class and inside of class because of technology. Um, and of course, now we're thinking about ways that we teach classes fully online, um, ways that we integrate the online and the face-to-face -face, um, so that we can really think about what we can accomplish best and how we can make the best use of our time that we do have face-to-face. -face. Sure. Um, because for our students especially, that's really precious time. Um, I, I think something like 75% of our students are non-traditional in one way or another. Um, you know, they have kids, they have jobs, they have internships, they have a lot of other things going on. And we want to make sure that there's enough value added to what's happening in the classroom that it separates us from, you know, some of the, um, you know, fully online programs or for-profit programs or MOOCs or even Coursera. Um, we really need to be doing something more valuable and more important to enhance their skills. Um, and so I think technology is helping us um, th rethink our pedagogy in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um I think the second way that our pedagogy is changing is that because our students have changed, we've had to change our assumptions about what students expect and um, what we need to communicate about our expectations in ways that respond to different cultural and um, sort of personal backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, you know, historically, uh, and we're still in some ways kind of battling this assumption, um, students have sort of assumed that college is about coming to class and your professor is going to give a lecture and you're going to sit there and take notes and then you're going to go home. That's not really what we're trying to do anymore. And so we're trying to overcome um, that in some ways um, with some of our students, especially students coming from cultures where that's truly what's happening even at the K-12 level. Um, a lot of our students who are coming from um, this area in Virginia, especially Fairfax High School um, and the Fairfax County High Schools, um, you know, they're getting a really interactive, engaged, really well thought out um, pedagogy at the high school level. And so they're actually coming in expecting more collaboration and interaction and activity. Um, and so because we have such a large and diverse student body where we have some students expecting that straight up lecture format and some expecting collaboration, um, we really have to think about how to work with students to help marry those expectations a little bit in the uh -huh. way that we talk about what we do. Um, but we also have to understand that our students have different assumptions about the value of communication or, or not the value of communication per se, but how much different kinds of communication are valued. Um, you know, if you're a female student coming from a country in Asia or in the Middle East where you're not really supposed to speak up, um, maybe you're not allowed to shake the hand of a male student in the classroom. Um, maybe you're not supposed to draw attention to yourself by speaking in front of an audience. What we try to accomplish in a tr sort of traditional Western public speaking class isn't just a skill set. Now it's also a completely transformative way of thinking about what is and isn't it okay and what your role is with another group of people and in society. And so um, there's some things that we're having to do pedagogically to really think about um, those kinds of things that we're doing with students as well. Yeah, it's really interesting that in addition to the the standard uh, curriculum of a course, mm -hmm. in your situation, you really have to think about how culture interweaves with that. Um, and I like how you describe that as trying to balance expectations um, because the expectations, as you noted, from your students will be quite diverse, not only because of their previous educational experiences, but also because of their culture. Yeah, exactly. Melissa, let's focus a little bit more specifically on just the public speaking element. Mm -hmm. um, you actually mentioned before about when you were talking about the difference between the public speaking and the hybrid class about some of your recommendations. Do you think that 
focusing on public speaking as we do at several uh, universities and also in several high schools. Is that something that's still relevant in a, in a culture where it's so dominated by social media and Twitter and that sort of thing? I mean, is there still a relevance to public speaking um, in today's society that, you know, our students are, are facing? Absolutely. I think it's actually more relevant than ever before, in part because of those technologies. Um, you know, we're in, inundated by so many different messages from so many sources all of the time. Um, and everybody has these platforms to be able to share messages in ways that wasn't really possible 20 years ago, certainly not 50 years ago. Um, and, and so because everybody has the ability to access some of those platforms, I think helping students understand how to do that well, and even more importantly, perhaps how to speak well and keep the attention of the audience that's right in front of them it is maybe a harder task in some ways, but even more relevant than ever. Um, because I think at the heart of public speaking, what we're trying to teach students how to do is to share clear messages that break through the noise that's happening around them, right? And we talk about both the physical noise, right? The other things that are happening um, in the room, um, but also the psychological noise, right? All of the busyness of things mm -hmm. that are um, happening, you know, or the things that we're thinking about, the things that we're distracted by. Um, and, and I think being able to break through that noise requires even more effective communication skills because there is so much more noise. Um, but I think there are three things that we're really, there are a lot more than three things, but three sort of key skills that we're trying to teach in a public speaking class. Um, one is that we're trying to t explain complex processes and ideas to non-expert audiences, right? Um, and, and that's really what informative speaking is about, right? We're teaching audiences about something that we know something about that they maybe know a little bit less about, which is exactly what we're doing when we're teaching a class. It's what we're doing when we're explaining a new technology to, um, you know, a board of people that might help support um, the development of that technology. It's what we're doing when we um, try to explain why we should make one choice over another when we're building a building, right? Which kind of concrete do we need to use? Well, we need to be able to explain that in a way that is understood by people who are making those decisions. Um, I think that the second thing that we're trying to do um, is to teach students how to advocate for an idea, an issue, um, or the work that they're doing or that somebody else is doing. And the way that we advocate for those, if we're being really effective, is using really strong evidence and by using really good logical reasoning. And, you know, we've seen a lot of news stories lately about sort of the rise of fake news and how do we know what information is and isn't valid anymore. And I think that's a really critical um, piece of teaching public speaking is teaching students how to use evidence. And, you know, before we can even use the evidence, we need to be able to evaluate the evidence mm -hmm. um, and really understand how to do that in a way that is persuasive um, to really advocate in a way that's ethical. Because um, I think that communication ethics piece is a really critical part um, that we really need to be working with our students on. Um, and then I think the third thing that we do, besides informing and persuading, um, is we really help students learn how to connect to others in a more human way, right? Language is part of what allows human beings to communicate with other people. Um, you know, and I think there are a lot of us who would say communication is really the heart of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And without communication, relationship just really can't possibly happen. And one of the things that we do when we're teaching um, students to speak well, especially in commemorative speeches or special occasion speaking, right? When we're thinking about things like keynote speeches and um, commemorative speeches and wedding toasts and even some of the ways that we would talk in an everyday conversation or in some of those important moments in our lives, right? Um, think about proposals and kids being born and things like that. Um, the way that we use language 
can really help make an occasion more meaningful and help us connect with other people and establish and build those relationships in um, even more significant ways. Um, And somebody's ability to do that well in a speech can really help make those events and those life milestones more meaningful um, for all of us. And so I think those three aspects are really important things that we're teaching in public speaking, Um, you know, whether it's within the context of a hybrid course or um, just a straight up public speaking class. Um, And I'm afraid that if we lose those skills, um, we we sort of lose part of what it is to be part of a human community and our society's ability to accomplish things. You know, I've taught the concept of psychological noise for probably 20 years now. And the way that you explained it um, is so much more real world right now, because if you're a student that is in a situation, or it doesn't even have to be a student, it could be a community member that's in a situation where they're finding themselves wanting and needing to talk about issues related to um, uh, people coming into the country, you know, whether it's immigration or, um, you know, undocumented workers or whatever, you know, however you want to shape that topic, the psychological noise surrounding that topic right now is so um, overbearing that, you know, if I'm an average citizen, how do I even find a voice within that that milieu of 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 discourse that's going on i think that's a really great example but yet that's really what we're trying to help people learn to do is to find their voice in a situation where it seems like it's deafening yeah yeah and my guest today is dr melissa brockleman post who is an assistant professor at george mason university where she is also the uh, director of the basic communication course we've been talking about the importance of communication skills training for students especially at that introductory level uh, melissa um, let's transition away from talking about public speaking um, for just a, a few minutes you've done um, some focused research um, on giving communication education experiences to students from multilingual backgrounds. And in fact, you mm-hmm. talked about the importance of uh, diverse cultures in your setting in Fairfax. And I know that your, your previous experience teaching in California, you were confronted with many of the same issues. As you think about teaching communication to someone that grew up in a multilingual um, family, family situation, what, what are some of the benefits and challenges that you face when talking about communication? Because so much of communication is tied to a culture. And so how do you talk about that when you broaden it from you know, being one sort of culture, the North American culture, to including people that um, have had significant experiences, if not most of their life experience in another type of culture? Yeah, I think that's a really important question and one that universities are starting to be faced with and will, and those who aren't already will be in the next couple of decades. Um, I, I think one of the important things to think about to sort of start this conversation is the different ways that we talk about multilingual learners, um, because we've had a lot of different terms that we've maybe used over time. Um, but the sort of three way groups that I think of students as fitting in um, are L1, L2, and Generation 1.5. So your L1 students are students who um, grew up speaking English as their first language. It's the language they speak with their families. It's the language that they spoke in schools. It's really been the linguistic context that they've been immersed in. And maybe that's been here in the United States. Maybe that's been in a place like England or Australia um, or parts of India. Um, But English as a language is really what you think in, what you dream in. Um, It's your default in every situation. Our L2 students are students for whom a language other than English is that same thing, right? It's the language that they learned first. It's the language they probably still speak with their families. It's probably the language that they think in. 
Um, and, and so a lot of these students are international students, um, but a lot of these students are also students who have grown up in and lived in the United States their entire lives. Um, you know, when I was at Cal State LA, about 65% of our students spoke Spanish as their first language. And for our freshman students, it was about 75% of our students. And so it gives you a set of rich resources um, to think about things a little bit differently because each language um, has words for things that are different um, than maybe some other languages do. Um, but that's a challenging context because we're often trying to teach students to speak in English. And so we're trying to help them enhance their English speaking skills while also working to learn how to use the English language in rhetorical and persuasive ways, um, which is actually a tremendous challenge. Um, our third group of students are our Generation 1.5 students, and this is a group that's growing faster and faster and faster. Um, there are estimates that by about 2020, this will be about 40% of our K-12 students, um, and so it will follow very quickly after that in higher education. Um, Generation 1.5 students are students for whom English is not the first language. Right, so at home, they maybe learned another language, um, you know, as their first language with their family. It might still be the language that they speak with their family. Um, but Generation 1.5 students also speak English fairly fr fluently. Um, you know, maybe their family immigrated to the United States when they were a child, um, and so they went to schools that spoke English, and maybe they speak both English and the other language um, at home with their families, or, um, you know, depending on the family structure, they might speak only that other language at home, especially if there are grandparents um, in the home who also speak that other language. Um, and so our Generation 1.5 students are really interesting because they have really strong English skills and other language skills to draw on mm -hmm. when we think about communication situations. Um, but of course, it's not just the words that we know, right, and the language that we speak and think in. It's also some of the cultural assumptions that come with um, having cultural backgrounds that contribute to having that linguistic diversity. Um, and so this can take place both in terms of how we value different kinds of communication and listening, um, but also how we interact with each other in those situations. Um, and so, you know, when I think about some of the students we have here at Mason, um, we have a really large Middle Eastern population. And when we talk about things like interpersonal communication in the classroom, um, <laughs> one of the things that our students will often talk about is the ways that personal distance is different from culture to culture. And so uh, one of my students used this metaphor of the dance, right? He talks about this dance that teachers and students do where um, a student who is from a culture that has a very small personal distance, right, where people tend to stand closer when talking to people, even who um, are not, you know, family members or people that um, are intimate friends. Um, and so the student will take a step closer to the teacher. But if the teacher is, you know, somebody from the United States where we have a little bit larger personal distance for people who we don't know, we tend to take a step back without even thinking about it or realizing it um, because we're establishing a distance that's comfortable um, for that student-teacher interaction. And so, you know, students will say, you know, they'll actually watch as teachers take a step back and the student takes a step forward and neither of them have any idea that they're doing this until they've literally circled the room. <laughs> um, and, and so understanding some of those cultural aspects to just how we interact with each other interpersonally, um, I think is a really important piece um, that we haven't really got into um, in, in a lot of the research and communication education when we think about how we teach this course. Um, but another piece really has to do with thinking about how language and culture establishes what kinds of communication are appropriate, right? And so in the United States, we value 
public speaking really, really highly. Um, you know, and if you look at the kinds of things that we do in our schools, you know, in preschool and kindergarten, we start kids on show and tell, right, where the student brings a toy or an event or an activity or something exciting that's happened in their life into the classroom, and they stand up in front of their classmates for 30 seconds and talk about it, right? And, and I, you know, in the school that I grew up in, every Friday was show and tell day. Um, we don't talk about that as public speaking, but we're valuing and practicing and holding that up as something that we should do. And that's a good thing and an exciting thing mm-hmm. when we talk about it with our students. Um, you know, if you're a student, though, from a culture that's much less individualistic and much more collectivistic, that drawing of attention to oneself instead of to the group could be seen as really inappropriate. And so we often have students coming into the classroom who have never ever done a show and tell, right? Or they've never been part of, say, a science fair or, you know, a a classroom where you were giving oral book reports in your high school class, perhaps, Um, because that scene is inappropriate. Your job, culturally speaking, is to, you know, blend in and to be part of the group. Um, And if you have questions, you ask after class, you don't distract other people um, because you're taking away from the attention and the time and the learning that they would have. Um, And so we have some very different assumptions about what is and isn't appropriate in some of these communication contexts. Um, And so when we think about public speaking, I mean, we're really talking about a Western cultural value. And that doesn't mean that that skill set will be unimportant in those other cultures. But I think we have to really think about how we teach students to be sensitive to and aware of um, some of these different cultural values and ways that we think about different kinds of communication right? Um, Some cultures are much better at thinking about listening and um, really thinking about that interpersonal um, or that group interaction in much better ways than um, we tend to be in the United States. Um, And so I I think that really enriches the classroom discussions and really um, gives us an opportunity to let our students help teach all of us um, some of those things that they bring with them while we're learning together about new skills as well. Melissa, you talked so much about uh, sort of and just in this answer about how students are experiencing uh, communication education in various ways as they go through k-12 and and then get to the college classroom I know that you've worked um, as in your role as a basic course administrator with with other basic course administrators from around the country um, actively involved in the in the conference that's held annually and also in the National Communication Association to what extent do we need to be doing a better job of talking with our k-12 uh, peers that are teaching these communication concepts so that we can develop a you know a grand plan for how we develop students from a developmental perspective um, starting at kindergarten going all the way through uh, the end of their baccalaureate or associate's degree i think that's something where we have really dropped the ball as communication scholars and need to do a much much better job um, there are a few exceptions um, but for the most part most people who become language arts teachers don't take communication pedagogy courses as part of their teaching credentials. Um, I know Illinois for a while required it, although I think that they've also backed off that requirement. I know that there are some schools in the Cal State system that do actively um, encourage or in some places actually require a communication pedagogy course. Um, And so I think we have a real opportunity and in some ways have really failed as a discipline to reach out to our K-12 colleagues. Um, and we're starting to see communication 
being held up as a really important value or a really important outcome at the K-12 level. And we just don't, we haven't provided the resources to help teachers really understand how to do that well. And so I feel like a lot of them are kind of um, trying to figure it out without um, access to the resources. And there are a lot of complicated reasons why that's happened, but um, I'll give you an example. Here in Fairfax County, um, we have some of the best public schools in the country. And um, all of the Fairfax County schools got together and they, this is two years ago or three years ago, and came up with what they called the profile of the graduate, right? The five learning outcomes that they wanted to make sure every single student coming out of a Fairfax County high school would have when they finished. And number one on that list was communication. Hmm. And then we got a phone call from um, one of the schools and said, you know, we just decided communication is one of the most important things, but none of us know how to teach it. Can you come help? (laughs) Um, and that was a really big eye-opener for me. Um, and then, you know, shortly after that, this sort of rose to the surface as a conversation. But, you know, I think it would be really valuable if, as communication scholars, we really worked with our K-12 um, education programs and especially our language arts um, communication programs or development programs to help teachers learn how to teach communication skills better. Um, it's something that they're trying to do. Um, I know the Common Core is starting to go away, but... Um, communication skills were a really critical part of the language arts outcomes. Uh Um, And we just, we really didn't do a very good job of providing teachers with the resources to do that. Um, One of the challenges is um, the number of scholars that we have doing this kind of research um, is sort of limited um, compared to the number of teachers that we need to reach. And so um, I think we have some work to do there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot. And, you know, uh, when, when I was going through my undergraduate program, there were still, um, degrees in communication departments to become certified to teach uh, yeah. communication in K-12 settings. And and by and large, at almost every university, those have been folded into language arts, which are part of a college of education. And I think we've lost some of that contact. Um, there's one final question that I wanted to ask you, because I know that um, you've had experience uh, doing work, uh, not only practical practical work, but also your your um, doctoral dissertation was on the topic of academic dishonesty. And, you know, as I look at things that are happening in um, the national scene, you know, especially surrounding politics, but certainly not limited to that, um, there are instances of people that, you know, it looks like they just basically cut and paste uh, things that goes into a speech, um, even coming out of, out of um, you know, very prominent um, political offices, we see that. Uh, and so it's not limited to um, people sort of in a one-off. I mean, it's, it's actually happening from government sources even. And, and as I've thought about that, um, certainly academic misconduct and plagiarism has always been a part of what we as educators face. Um, it seems like because of the digital culture that we live in, that's not only easier to do, but it also is becoming sort of, I don't want to say expected, but the the point that I'm making is I feel like we're teaching people that reusing information is something that's appropriate. And I think as an educator, you and I would say that, of course, we do that. We do that every time we write a research paper. We reuse ideas from others and package them in new and unique ways. But we're we're borrowing ideas from others to help build the points that we're trying to make in our own writing and our own discourse. So I think that's become more commonplace in the digital culture that we live in. It's easier to access information. It's easier to draw upon the arguments of others to work into your own work. But yet, 
the same time, that also then heightens the risk of academic misconduct and what we might more specifically call plagiarism. So as somebody that's well-versed in this area and someone that, that also is an academic leader, what's your take on how we ought to be talking about issues of academic misconduct and academic honesty with our students so that they understand how that has meaning in a world that that really does value the idea of borrowing ideas from others and using them for your own purpose? I think that's a really great question. Um, you know, and I think part of the answer starts with just having a conversation about what we mean by plagiarism and academic honesty. Um, you know, all of us have an idea of what we think plagiarism and academic misconduct is in our head, but we don't all share the same ideas. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, when I was co collecting the data for my dissertation research, one of the things we found is that a lot of students would do things like collaborating with others, right, which is actually a skill we want students to develop. They're going to be collaborating and working together on teams probably for the rest of their lives in most workplaces. Um, and yet for some faculty um, and for some students, that would be defined as a form of cheating or of plagiarism because you're working together with another person. Um, to develop something that maybe you were supposed to do on their own for the purposes of that class. Um, and, and so I think a really important piece is just starting with, you know, what do we mean by academic integrity? Um, you know, and where are some of those boundaries and why do they exist, right? In what cases is it okay to borrow an idea, right? There's actually a, a lot of value, I think, to paying homage to um, others who have said things particularly well, right? Some of the best speeches um, really borrow from classical literature and um, poetry and music in some really interesting ways, um, but in ways that we assume that the audience knows that that's what's happening, right? And I think about um, Peggy Noonan's book, What I Saw at the Revolution, um, in particular, um, when she was talking about, I believe it was the speech that Reagan gave after the Challenger. Um, the last line of that speech actually came from 1800s poetry that she just happened to have been reading that week. Mm. Um, and that was seen as a really nice um, poetic way to bring meaning to what was a really, really challenging, painful moment for most of our nation. Um, and, and so, you know, there are times when that's appropriate. And the ways that we cite where that came from in those contexts is different than, you know, what we might do in an academic paper. Um, and, and so I think we have to have a really honest conversation within academia, but also with our students about, you know, when do we cite, when do we not, when do we assume the audience knows that we're, um, you know, paying tribute um, and honoring somebody by using their words versus stealing their words um, and trying to claim them as our own. Um, you know, when is it appropriate to collaborate with others and when is it not? Um, you know, and when do we give credit versus take credit for ideas? Um, you know, depending on <laughs> sort of your philosophical stance on how knowledge is created, you know, some people would say, look, you know, we might think we're coming up with an original idea, but we're really influenced by the conversations and ideas of other people, right? <laughs> I might be thinking a lot about a particular research topic right now, but that's influenced by conversations that I had with people in graduate school and at conferences and, you know, things that I'm reading and, um, you know, conversations that I'm having with my colleagues. And so, you know, is that really my work or is that the product of work that I'm doing as a result of conversations with other people? And uh, that's actually a really complicated issue um, to think through. Um, so in, in some senses, I think we really need to rethink what our expectations are um, and just be really clear about when it's okay to 
um, you know, pay tribute and how we do that and when it's okay to, um, you know, work with others versus when we need to work alone, but when it's okay to reuse our own work versus when it's not um, in ways that we might adapt that and improve it in that subsequent versioning. You know, if you're writing your fifth lit review about the same um, topic, of course, there's going to be some repetition. Um, you know, how much is okay is, uh, you know, a, a bigger question. Um, you know, a lot of times I think there's a lot of concern about plagiarism and cheating in our classrooms as well. I mean, we have sort of this concern about sort of the writ large, you know, in the public sphere, um, but also in our classrooms, you know, there's a lot of worry about cheating and plagiarism. Um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting is I think we've, we're actually at some universities at least seeing a decline um, because it's so much easier to get caught now. <laughs> um, as the basic course director, I am the one who reports every single cheating and plagiarism case that any of my instructors um, have. And, you know, when you have 50 to 60 instructors a year and up to 4,000 students a year, um, statistics would say that's a, that should be a really large number. And it turns out it's maybe a dozen cases a year. Um, but we have a tool called SafeAssign that gives you, it's sort of like Turnitin, where you have this report that tells you what percent is taken from other places. And you can actually see where it overlaps with those documents. Um, and so I think students know that it's easier to get caught, but also when we see that plagiarism, it lets us have a really good educational conversation about what was happening and why. Um, and sometimes we find out it was an honest mistake. A student uploaded the example that somebody else had written that we had posted in our Blackboard shell instead of the work that they had done. They just had the wrong document, but they had downloaded the example to use to sort of think about how they were doing their own work. So they had just given us the wrong thing. You know, other times it lets us have a really good conversation with students about, you know, if, if you are taking this class for a second time and you're turning in the same work you did in the last class, here's why that's probably not a good choice. You know, or if you're borrowing this from your classmate, here's why you're not learning um, and, and accomplishing the skills development that we think is really important. And here's why we're doing this assignment to begin with. Um, but I think it also helps us as educators think about how we design our classroom experiences. Um, you know, if we're really helping students think through the drafting and planning and revision process and the way that we structure our classes and our assignments, um, I, I think that also helps students manage their time in different ways and manage the way that they work on those assignments in different ways um, that better reflects a, a really true academic um, experience where they're learning what they need to. Um, and I think that's academic integrity sort of at a different level when we're putting the students first in the way that we think about what we ask them to do. Yeah, I think that's a really smart way of thinking about it. Um, and I think the point that you made that we need to have a dialogue with students, I mean, it, it, it's not just putting rules in a syllabus. I mean, you sort of have to do that, I guess. But it's really more having a conversation with students about, uh, in every class, really, about how uh, the class and the work that they'll be doing in that class is built upon ideas and that part of, of, of doing great work is capitalizing on the fact that you are basing your work on ideas of others and, and synthesizing it in a unique way. And and I think that's more of a conversation than it is a list of rules, right? <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. you know, the syllabus can say one thing, but, but actually having that dialogue with students and how that plays a role, not only in your class, but in their future uh, work and their careers uh, is, is really important. Our guest today has been Dr. Melissa Brockleman-Post. She is an assistant professor at George Mason University, where she's also the basic course director. And Melissa, thank you for uh, being a part of uh, Teaching Matters today and talking uh, about your experiences as a communication educator. And, the, and, and especially, we talked a lot about the importance of culture, which I think is uh, both essential and fascinating. 
Thanks for having me, Scott. And thank you all for listening to Teaching Matters. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer today was Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth. I also want to give special thanks to Tim Vickers of Ohio University Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WOUB Public Media, thank you for listening and have a great day.